0: Okay, um, we'll, we'll get started because, uh, I want to be committed to no more than 90 minutes or, no, an hour and a quarter. What's so. that? It might not even go that long today. Uh, but as you've heard from uh, the leadership of Canterbury Gardens, uh, we want to focus a little bit on discipleship and these sessions which are going to uh, run as you can see from the timetable uh, This Sunday, next Sunday Two Sundays in March and two Sundays in April are designed to take you just a little bit deeper Into uh, Bible study methods uh, Probably I would call it inductive Bible study We're going to stay away from primary languages as such uh, But we'll look at how can we study more deeply God's word in our in the English language? Because uh do we have any Greek scholars here or any Hebrew scholars? Scholar, it. Yeah. Yeah, so generally in our, within our churches we don't have many folks that could read or write Greek or Hebrew would be doing primary translations from those languages. On a daily basis, so that's the assumption So what we're going to do here is we're going to look we will, we will refer a little bit to the primary languages But that's not what we're going to do here We're going to look at uh, the best form with the English tools we have uh, And today we're going to particularly look at two topics Inerrancy and textual criticism Now, I want this to be kind of interactive, so if something I say just sort of, you have no idea what I've said, then probably I've had no idea what I've said as well. So it'd be helpful for you to interject and say, hey, could you just please explain that? Uh, Because I want this to be quite an interactive learning environment. It's not a typical preaching session. I'm not going to preach it to you often. It might be on occasions I get a little bit passionate, and I'll go into the text and We'll interact with the text in that way But it's really designed uh, for you to ask questions And to improve your own Bible study method With the sole goal Of applying it It's pointless us just having a head full of knowledge Without application Uh, So this is not going to be some elite uh, type of exercise Where all we're doing is searching after knowledge It needs to have an edge to it where it actually convicts us Where it actually reproves us Corrects us And trains us in righteousness And where did I take that verse from? Yes, first or second, we can have a guess here, you've got a 50-50 chance. <laughs> <laughs> 3.16, think of John 3.16, think of Second Timothy 3.16. sixteen. All right. Second Timothy 3.16 tells us that it's a very important verse when it comes to the inspiration of Scripture. And it says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So who's the source of all Scripture? God. I like the ESV translation here. Uh, other translations say all scripture is inspired by God. Breathed out has a, a better sense and it's, uh, and then it says the purposes for that. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. So that the, the man and woman of God may be competent, equipped, for every good work. That uh, I think encapsulates the the beauty of the Bible. It's God's word to us. And uh, unfortunately though, in today's world, and even within the so called Christian church, they are reducing God's word to nothing. And this sort of started in the, uh, probably after the the great schisms. You had the Reformation where God's word was God's word, sola scriptura, God's word alone, faith alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, the five solas that they pressed out through the Reformation in 1517. And then probably 130 years later, the... Uh, The thinking, the philosophers of the time Were starting to play with Scripture in a way Which we've never seen before They started taking the Supernatural out of it They started reducing This was primarily the New Testament Primarily in the New Testament They started to think Well, is the record we actually have From God Or is it Made up by the early church To force a theology upon people And they started to reduce through this age of reason And the age of enlightenment These philosophers started to think through these elements And uh, became very damaging to the church I guess the major backlash happened in the 20th century in about 1920s and 1930s where the conservatives stood up and said, hey, you cannot do that to Scripture, especially against the German scholars of the time. Um, what you're doing is you're taking God out of the Scriptures. You're reducing God to a mere man. You're, you're, you're destroying the Christology of uh, Christ and you're actually saying that this is an infallible book full of errors. And uh and that that is a a thing that we need to understand. It's part of our history, it's part of the last five hundred years of Christendom. We've got what we would call liberal scholars and conservative, and we split. And our primary split is on the authority. Inspiration and errancy of scripture Okay, so that's just a, a brief introduction and, and as you see from your notes today And please draw all over these What I'd love you to do If you have any questions that are, we don't answer In the session then you make a note Email me during the week And we'll answer at the start of next week So inerrancy and an introduction to textual criticism, as you can see by, um, hi Sue, I think there's some notes around somewhere. As you can see, over the six weeks, we're not covering everything, uh, we're just trying to cover some basic information for you. But as we start this one, I, I just want to ask the question, how did we receive God's Word? How have we received this? We have 66 books of the Bible New and Old Testament What is the process By which we have received this? It's a question you're allowed to answer It's not a rhetorical question
1: My understanding is We've got the first five books of the Old Testament, because of the Jews, and they faithfully kept them, and then we got the, the the other ones in the New Testament books because of the writers who did that, and they were faithfully uh, kept. And then we run across those scrolls in the caves that proved that they were faithfully kept. And we carried on.
0: Okay. Other thoughts. I don't, I don't
1: that knowing is first of all that no prophecy is scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy is
0: remained by an act of human will, but many move by the Holy Spirit spoke for God. Mm. That's a really uh wonderful scripture. And we'll, we'll come to that. So second Peter one twenty one twenty twenty. One twenty. Twenty. Twenty, yeah. We'll talk and twenty-one. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk through the broader context of that shortly. Other thoughts.
2: God took history and inspired man to write things down. This eternal truth, yeah. and I call it "of the cookbook for life," uh, and, and it's equally inspired old and new. The historical context is extremely important, so that's why we always have to understand what's the cultural context at that time, the issues God dealt with at that time, for these people's context. I thought
1: that there was a, a um, meeting where they had all the historical books made, and so they we said, well, that is inspired by God, that wasn't we've got the actual physical bible as we know it now that's why there's, you get these people to say there's all these other funny books between the Old Testament and the New Testament um, but we all obviously believe that what we have now is what God wanted us to have because yep. that meaning has also been trying to ascertain what God wanted
0: yep any other thoughts?
1: I thought it wasn't was dictation, and unlike the Quran and the Mormon Book and so forth, but God working people's lives, producing the work, and even <coughs> editing and having it edited afterwards, bringing it together. Um, so you get Ezekiel, first person, and then you get that third person speaking. So it can be brought about by one person only, but also a group book.
0: Yep, okay. Alright, if you look to your page here, I've given a process, and I think this is the process that we will follow. I've given the process of receiving our Bibles and the properties of our Bibles. And I think it's important to think through those two tense. There is a process by which we've received this. Okay. We didn't, we, in our generation, yes, we happen to have 66 books. That hasn't always been the case. As you appreciate. How much of scripture did they have in AD 90, for instance? Or how much scripture did they have in AD 50? Okay, so there is a process. And I think the first thing that you need to understand is that there is a, it's God's revelation. I think you stated that. It's it's God's revelation to mankind, it's His book. God breathes. Second Timothy 3. He's breathed it out. First Peter talks about how that happened. And in scripture, there's, um, there's two types of revelation, isn't there? So what are the two types of revelation that we have? Think about Psalm 19. What does Psalm 19 tell us? It's a good reference point for this type of thing. Grab Psalm 19. This is a wonderful, wonderful psalm. And uh, Jules and I, when we were in New Zealand last week, uh, we were sitting down having this meal, and it was towards dusk, and the heavens just lit up with this magnificent uh, picture of the sun setting and the clouds and the colour—something so, I have not seen we were, for a very long time. We were on the shores of a lake, a large lake, and you know. The psalm immediately came to mind. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech, nor there are words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their works to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from his heat. What type of revelation is that? How is God displaying himself there? Natural, revelation. Natural. General is another way we would say that because every human being can see that. Right? You don't have to be saved. You don't have to be a follower of Christ to, to, to see the general revelation of God. This is what this verse says. The heavens declare the glory of God.
2: For me personally, that was the beginning to, to become a Christian. Yeah. I, even as a child, I n- never believed that it's here for a second and then it's not. It's, it's not possible. It's too beautiful. It's too perfect. It's too harmonious,
0: yeah so it's, it's, it's incomprehensible You've got to say there is a creator Right But in today's society Since about 1850 The attack has been on the creator The attack has been around evolution It's been around all these different forms That take us away from theism and the creator And someone who's By his very word Said and it was And uh Yeah but this is general revelation And even a little bit further on In Romans if you look at Romans chapter 1 At the end of Romans chapter 1 You have The same sort of thing being said By Paul wonderful when God's word testifies in many places about the same truth. That's one of the authority issues that scripture has. Which no other book has. Okay, verse 20 of Revelation, uh, Romans 1. I say Revelation, sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world. His majesty, his ability to create something out of nothing has clearly been seen so that man are without excuse. That's general revelation. Let's go back to Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11. Reward. What's that talking about? Special Special revelation. Why is it special revelation? No, why is it special? And to specific people That's what makes it special The very fact that if you put your faith and trust in Christ You are, have revealed special revelation Because the word of God tells us that the gospel in itself Is foolishness to those who don't understand okay? And it's an offense and it's an affront and we all know that when we witness to our unsaved friends the mockery and the, the, uh, the accusations that come our way. You can see right there the gospel is an offense and it's not a general part of revelation. It has to, something has to happen. God has to move that person's soul and spirit towards faith. Okay, so that's specific. So we have two types of revelation, God's revelation. We have general revelation, which uh, is nature, is uh, conscience, is uh, spiritual longings. Uh, The methods of general revelation and the special, specific revelation, where God is exclusively active. And the human recipient is passive. Think of things throughout scripture like theophanies, visions, dreams, and other supernatural encounters. That's special revelation by God. And then we have, that's the outward revelation of a special revelation. Then you have inward revelation, where God is primarily active. And the human recipient responds and communicates to some extent in conveying the message. You know, this is the prophets. Spoken prophecies through men. When A prophet ever said, thus said the Lord. They are the uh, avenue of special revelation from God to his people. Uh, there's some other, there's some distinctions between, I guess, general and special revelation. Uh, the three, uh, how should I write this? Um, I think it's all around the fall, okay? When the fall occurred, this separated us from God. You know, three effects of the fall on God's revelation was there's one on nature. The earth is groaning and waiting for redemption just like we are. You know, the earth was cursed. Uh, you see that in Genesis 3. You see that in Romans 8, 19 to 22. You see the effects of the falls on man. We're separated from God's truth. Satan is continually trying to blind us And on the message I think The the message of general revelation Was affected by the fall But there are two wonderful divine provisions In response to the fall And that's uh, in special revelation It was given and then spiritual regeneration was bestowed. So there's just some things to think through. Any questions on that? On special and general revelation?
1: No? Huh? Told the prophets to go and tell a message.
0: Yep. You know, we call that um, special revelation. Yep. And then the prophets go and tell it, and they tell it a bit differently. They say it a little bit not exactly
1: as God has told them. How do you know? Well, I just said it when God told Moses to go and do it, and he went and did it, and you hear that he spoke different words a different message. Is God giving us, or giving the prophets, their own room to move? a message to these people and in that doing so he gives um, power or inspiration breathing in the prophet to uh, reach the people he's supposed to speak to with those words or is Moses in in this case I'm just um, is he a dictaphone that just will just do the opposite like a recorder or does God want to use Moses and use he is the believe and so forth. Still God inspired, but to for him to so God so Moses is part of the project to get it
0: across yep yeah. I think we'll um, we're gonna cover that in the next bit under inspiration. So we'll get to that. Yeah. So any questions on special and general revelation? <laughs> any statements? Anybody want to say I absolutely disagree with you. Or oh, absolutely agree. There is. Yeah. Okay, let's go on to the next part. So, the process one was revelation, special and general, and then we have inspiration. Inspiration. Now, what I'll give you. Inspiration is really the pillar of the truth of Scripture. When we study Scripture, we call it. Bibliology. Okay. Bible plus ology. To sound really impressive with any theology, you always put ology after it. Okay. So that's where it's bibliology. Okay. This is what we're wrestling with here. Because your view of inspiration will determine your view of the scriptures. And inspiration is also Completely linked with inerrancy So this is part of the process It's been revealed by God And we're going to find out Well where has it been inspired But as a property of the Bible The property that comes out of the inspiration Is, is it is inerrant And those two things are very closely Associated So what are some inadequate views of inspiration? Can you think of any inadequate views that might be there? You know, we've got our Bible because of this. What are some inadequ- inadequate things you've heard? I'll start off. Um, natural inspiration. The Bible is only, only a product of human genius. Okay, so that would be an inadequate view. It's not supernatural. Uh, Our German scholars of the 17th and 18th century went down that track. What would be another inadequate view of inspiration? Hmm? It's It's not relevant, yeah. Yeah? That'd be a product of it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's a it's a book of history, but for that particular point in time, uh, yeah. I mean, you mentioned evolution before, but that it? sort of
1: science has superseded some of the Bible. Yeah.
0: Time time. We, when we were ignorant, we had to say God did everything, but now we're smart and scientific. We can explain some. Explaining stuff away, yeah, yeah. I think that 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 impacts our view and inspiration. It may not be an inadequate view of inspiration But it definitely impacts our view That okay, uh, it doesn't sort of line up here scientifically So therefore it mustn't be inspired I think, um, so natural is one that's an inadequate view Maybe mystical A mystical view The Bible's divine but the process by which we've got it is one of supernatural intuition So the prophets and the writers have sort of had this intuition, this feeling, this hunch about this is what God is saying and So it's an inadequate view Uh, So it comes with any spiritual person, spirit-filled person could write the words of God That would be inadequate, right? Because God used certain people at certain times to write his word, as so we get from 1 Peter, or 2 Peter. And the mystical view would also say that the Bible does not possess unique authority. Okay? So anybody could have written at any point in time, there's no one point of authority being God. There are a couple of them. There's uh, some say partial is an inadequate view, or parts of scripture are inspired, other parts aren't. You hear that a little bit. Normally the inspired ones deal with matters of faith and practice. Um, so that's a view, but it's an inadequate view. Or um, when they quote in the Bible, other books, make the other books No. No, so there are quotings right? in the New Testament, uh, Paul does it, so does Jude They quote other sources of scripture, it does not make that other source of literature inspired Only makes the stuff inside the letter inspired Yeah, that's a good point Endorsement, this is an interesting one Endorsement, inspiration is the act of God approving or endorsing what the human authors wrote naturally so that's, uh, I'll read that again Inspiration is an act of God approving or endorsing What the human authors wrote naturally So there it's gone on the other side of the pendulum right If you say God inspired all scripture Through use of human author We'll read this in a sec uh, This one is saying no, the human authors wrote it And then at some other point in time God inspired it Doesn't make sense but that's the view out there, or dictation. It's another view. God so controlled the inspiration process that the writers were totally passive instruments, like computers. That de-emphasizes the human's role, de-emphasizes the author's role. You know, if we uh, we talked about these two great verses. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen and Second Peter one twenty and twenty one. Memorise these; these are great. The key word there is God breathed in Second Timothy. It's it's uh, found only once in the New Testament. So it's what we call a hapex, a hapex ligament, where you have this word only used once. And it's um, theonumatos, is the word. Literally means God breathed. And it's a figurative thing, you know? It's It's a picture, isn't it? God breathing out. The process by which the scriptures were originated. So that's one of the words. And then, if we look at, um, let's read Second Peter. Julie read it for us before, which is great. I just want to pick up some words in there as well. Second Peter, one. I'm going to go back to uh, give you some context Now context is very important Whenever we we study scripture So let's go back to the start of the paragraph Which is uh, verse 16 Let's read this through For we did not follow cleverly devised myths When when he made known to you The power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty Whose... uh, Who's writing this? Peter Peter was a reasonably close associate to Jesus You'd say that, wouldn't you? That'd be a fair assumption Yeah Yeah, yeah <laughs> Yeah So Who do you think he's collectively talking about here in that very first sentence? Let's do some basic inductive Bible study This is a good, good thing to do For we did not follow... Who's the we? Yeah. You would think so, right? You would think so. Because uh, when Peter writes this, if you went back to the start of Second Peter, he introduces himself, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not with anybody else. Like Paul sometimes says, you know, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, or he'll introduce a letter with, with some of his mates. Here Peter is writing by himself. And he's writing to those who have believed, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with us. So with us, he uses us right at the start of chapter one. So the us must refer to Peter and the apostles. Okay? Excluding, I mean, in this tense it would exclude Paul when he comes to 16 because Paul wasn't an eyewitness. At the time Christ walked earth, Paul was an eyewitness at the rise of Damascus. Okay. So for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were, when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When did that happen? Transfiguration. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. So Peter's recounting the transfiguration. And we have something more sure. That's an interesting term. So what's he saying here? What type of statement is that phrase? Start of verse 19. And we have something more sure. So he's just, he's accounting, he's accounting the situation of being an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Christ. He's saying, we saw that. So contextually we know, did every apostle see that? No. So therefore the we now is Peter, James and John. We saw that. And now he's saying, and now we have something more sure. More sure than what? An eyewitness account, a transfiguration account. We have something, I've got something more sure than than what I've actually physically seen. What's more sure than what you've physically seen? Look, I see Julie every day. I know that's Julie. Alright? I wake up in the morning. Oh, that's Julie. Which is a good thing. Well, good thing she's still there. (laughs) But, you know, what is, um, what is more sure than something you see? It's a really interesting statement, isn't it?
2: Something supernatural.
0: Something supernatural. What's his answer? You tell me what the answer is. Yeah, the prophetic word. What's the prophetic word? Inspired word. Inspired word, because then he starts to explain what the, the prophetic word is. I think this is the point where you could bring in the
1: difference between
0: propositional and actualistic revelation. mm mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Let's continue reading through. To which you will do well to pay attention, so he gives a warning, as to the lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy, so we're talking about prophetic word here, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, what is the Word of God based on that particular scripture? Well, it's not a product of man's own interpretation, is it? Yeah. It says very clearly no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Okay? So clearly it's not that. What's the process of getting the Scripture according to this? Moved by the Holy Spirit. Like a ship with a wind in its sail, if you want to go back and do a little bit of that carried along," has the, the sense of a, a ship being blown along by wind From the Holy Spirit. What was the a divine source in Second Timothy 3:16? God. God breathed, the divine source in Second Peter is the Holy Spirit Which is interesting because the word for Holy Spirit in the original language is pneuma Which is wind it Ties in beautifully with the God breathed issue As being divine source What's the human agency in here? What part does man play in Second Peter?
1: Men speaking. Men speaking what God holds them to, or what God inspired them
0: to. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So man is used. Just like the prophets in the past, man is used. It's the human agency. And what is the purpose of Scripture here? Yeah, yeah. Which is, what, what do we call that? What do we call something when we turn on a light? Illumination. That's a theological term which is used in this here. Okay, so, so the... Purpose here is illumination for us who read His Word. What's the purpose in Second Timothy? Those four things. Can you remember them? Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Okay. Teaching, rebuke, and correcting, and training in righteousness. So, who would like to have a go at a definition of inspiration? Can I turn your pages over? Based on these two verses and a very, very brief summary of what we've just done, have a go at writing a definition of inspiration. I'll give you five minutes. I you you go get a drink of water. <laughs> so who would like to share the definition? I know it's quicker than five minutes, but too bad. <coughs> A definition of inspiration. It. Uh, the outward production or expression
1: of something from
0: within. The outward production
1: or expression of something from within.
0: From something from within. Okay. Me out there yep. to share it. Yep. Who's the source of that? Well, in this case, it's God. God. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that would need to be in your definition somewhere, right? Eh? So, um, God or the Spirit of God. Yeah. Yep. Like that. I like that It's good I Like that Yeah You've got most of the major elements In both those verses coming through there Which is great you have to Keep it simple right? Yeah
2: Keep it simple is just a trick I mean I wrote God intended message For mankind Through man But in general terms can be man or woman.
0: Good No, no, you've got to have your own, you can't add on. Um
1: but the effect being it has to have some effect, like it talks about here the stars and the light in that place. So that would also indicate it's
0: inspirational. So you're talking a bit further. You're talking about the applicational side of the inspiration. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I think we'll just move on a little bit because I'm running behind time. It's okay. I'll give you a proposed definition here. I'll read it once so you can't write it down. (laughs) God, superintended. the writing of his message through human authors and That's what 1 Peter tells us In their own styles So that the message is totally without error In the wording of the original documents okay, So it's just a little different play But I really like what everyone's done that it's, You're thinking through it which is great Okay, so we said we were going to look at, uh, I was going to go through the proofs of inspiration, but I'll leave that, uh, or, or I'll quickly do that actually. In the Old Testament, the major proofs of inspiration are the dual authorship of the Old Testament. <coughs> Second Samuel 23.2 talks about the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. Okay. In Matthew 22, how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? So you have a dual authorship process going on. You have the divine authority of the Old Testament as the New Testament writers interchange the word scripture for the word God in referring to the Old Testament and vice versa. Romans 9.17 says For the scripture says to Pharaoh Whereas Exodus 9.16 The passage Paul refers to Makes it clear that God speaks to Pharaoh So there's that interchangeableness That's going on So By doing so what Paul does there Is he places the authority of God And the authority of scripture on an equal basis Christ himself Confirmed the inspiration of scripture in his direct statements, John 10, 35, Scripture cannot be broken, Matthew five nineteen twenty. 20, I have not come to abolish the law. In Jesus' use of the Old Testament, he used Scriptures repeatedly to, one, refute the Pharisees, to rebuke Satan. How about that? On the temptation, what did he do? When Satan tempted him, the first thing he did was he went back to Scripture each time. And he used it to authenticate his own ministry. Walked into the synagogue, grabbed hold of the scroll scroll of Isaiah, and read, Today the scripture has been completed in your hearing. I am the Messiah. They didn't believe him, but Jesus used it. He also used scripture to teach the people. I think we underestimate the amount of Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. The use by Jesus, the use by Paul, the use by Peter. It's incredible how much is there. So it shows that scripture is inspired. Jesus' view of historical reliability. He referred to historical events as completely trustworthy including many events that skeptics have frequently described as myth. He used Jonah, destruction of Sodom, the flood, the reality of a, a single human couple in Eden. Jesus used all those things. Um, Uh, The apostles claimed their very own message Spoken and written was authoritative You know 1 Corinthians 2.13 We speak not in words taught by human wisdom But in those taught by the spirit 1 Thessalonians 2.13 When you received from us the word of God's message You accepted it not as the word of men But what it really was, the word of God These are just some of the the things we could we could talk about when it comes to inspiration Do you want to just dive a little bit deeper on this? Because I can if you want me to This is an important verse that we need to probably discuss Okay, hold on to you That's a little bit And it goes back to this 2 Timothy 3.16 Second okay. Timothy three sixteen in the original language there is the literal translation would be all scripture God breathed and profitable. Okay. What is it missing when I say that? All scripture, God breathed and profitable What am I missing if you look at the verse that you have in your Is, I'm missing a verb aren't I Okay, there is no verb in the original Greek language It comes to this particular translation The verb is missing Where should it be supplied what are your two options? You could either go option one, all God breathed scripture is also profitable. Or you could go all scripture is God breathed and profitable. What's the theological implications of one versus the other? One implies that it's all God breathed, and the other would suggest that it's possibly only. Yes. Right. Both options are possible If one takes the first It could be argued that Paul allows That some of the Bible is not inspired okay? If you said all God breathed scripture Is also profitable You're saying there may be some that's not okay? Whereas option two All scripture is God breathed and profitable Is what we have in our Modern translations And I would suggest to you For a variety of reasons Are are good Because it's based on an exegetical Decision that you have to make Not a theological decision Exegesis favours option 2 For these reasons All other uses of scripture Are unqualified and refer to divine writings So if you go right throughout the New Testament The Old Testament Whenever you have the word scripture used It's unqualified To qualify it here as you would do in option one All God breathed scripture is also profitable Would be an abnormal use of the word I'm just digging a little bit deeper here for you Just so you know The two objectives, God breathed and profitable, should function as a single unit Um, I won't go into why But they should function in that way They should be translated similarly and also supported by their close word order And by the similarity of their endings if you to translate this verse Following option one It radically breaks the unity of the phrase So this is why I say it's exegetical Not theological It's semantics It's, it's talking about language and structures And things like that And it's important to understand Some of those things Any questions on that? I mean,
2: it's always important to, Because it's written in Greek The New Testament You have to understand The way they phrase yep. words, English speaking people have the advantage, everybody wants to speak English but the, is, uh, the shortcoming of that is you never learn another language yep. as Swiss I have to learn four or five different languages for example I work in Nepal and we, we, we do speak English for example that's why uh, the, 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 phrase, the phrases are completely different structured the verb is in a different place the, the, the object is in a different place and that's in Greek and, and Hebrew then as well so, so yeah. great. That, That's how, it's,
0: it's how important it is to understand The, the yeah. basics of the, the language God. That's great Okay, so the process of receiving our Bibles We've talked about revelation and inspiration Canonization we'll do next week Transmission, we're just going to briefly touch on Transmission What do I mean by transmission of Scripture? I said I want to transmit something. What am I doing? It down. Writing it down? Yeah. An app Downloading an app nowadays? Okay. Prior to about 1300, how would transmission take place? 1300 AD, I'm talking. Prior to 1300. Ah, I got, I got caught a printer. <laughs> See, this whole world's about printing. <laughs> it was um, written, right, physically handwritten. That's what we talk about, transmission. It's the, it's the process of copying before the printing press. That'd be the best way of, because you, you know what happened. When did the, when did the Gutenberg press come into play? It was about 1350, I think, wasn't it? Something like that? 1350, something like that. It was prior to the Reformation. But, um, yeah, and that changed everything. Because you and I could get the word of God in our hands. And we could read it for ourselves The Spirit of God could take that and transform us But part of that, we, when the, the, the documents were written It was done by human scribes, right? They carefully copied and preserved the manuscripts of Scripture So that the complete message of God's Word is available today So that causes a little bit of an issue, right? Because have you, who's here ever copied scripture? You know, I, I do it reasonably regularly, I try to How many mistakes do you make when you do it? <laughs> Tell me, how many mistakes do you make when you do it? <laughs> you know, you look down, you copy a sentence, you go away, have a cup of tea, come back, come to the coffee you know, Oh, I've started at the wrong place And so this transmission of scripture is now what we know as textual criticism. All right? there's, a, there's a science that's uh, started up because we realize that the, the manuscripts we have are copied articles. From a textual issue, we don't concern ourselves much with the Old Testament. Okay? Why is that? Yep. That may be so I'm not aware of that But give me just one historical fact Why We're not so concerned about the Old Testament And its accuracy Dead sea scrolls Bang Dead sea, why? Because
2: that's
1: the original thing They all copied off
0: Not the original thing But Why were the dead sea scrolls so important?
1: Because they were back then
0: yeah. Because prior to the prior to discovery of that we had a an older a much older copy. About a thousand years difference. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls were newer, if you like, and they matched the older version ninety nine point nine percent. The Book of Isaiah. So it gave us from an archaeological perspective From a text perspective That these guys who copied Because you know, you know what the Hebrew scribes used to do? Because they considered the scriptures so holy That once they had finished copying They would destroy the version that they were copying from No That's right Yeah, So that's what happened For a large part of what they did, so but but from a textual critic's perspective, because of Dead Sea Scrolls and those discoveries, there's a lot less argument about the Old Testament scriptures from that very fact, because they can actually see how close they are. Yeah, but New Testament's a little bit different, okay? Because we have many sort of manuscripts, and I just want to give you some of these to consider. Uh, on your piece of paper for What is textual criticism? Well, well it's I guess the best definition for that I'll give you here this Is it's the science of studying The copies of a text Whose original is missing In order to determine The form or wording Of the original text
2: okay.
0: I'll give you a promise Anyone got a King James Bible here? No your phone. Could someone look get King James on their phone? That would be great. I'll give this as by way, way example. Yeah, might be one there. Someone's got it on their phone, though. I think James is getting it. It's okay. Uh, Could you read maybe 1 John 5? 6 through 9
1: The witness of men,
0: the witness of God is greater. But this is the witness of God, in which He testified His Son. Okay, as um, James read that, were you following it in your own modern version at the point in time? Try to. <laughs> what was clearly obvious there? Clearly obvious was verse seven and eight were completely different. The first phrase was correct for there are three that testify. And then it goes on to provide a pretty strong trinitarian formula about what has been testified to. This is where textual criticism comes in. Okay, in the modern bibles that's been removed because the text is not there in the earlier manuscripts. That text was probably Memory about eight or 900 AD Was the text that particular two verses Was being taken from And yet they found earlier manuscripts That do not have it there Okay, So that, that's where textual criticism comes in And it's, a, it's only 1850, 1860 We started this type of science Into all the manuscripts we have And verifying, etc So It's an important discipline And the principles of textual criticism Or the two key areas of textual criticism Are the external And the internal So the external manuscript evidence Or the internal contextual evidence Those two things are very important Externally, it's manuscript evidence Internally, it's context Okay, it's context. When, I, uh, when you think through this, let's, let's talk about Greek manuscripts. So, we're only going to really talk about the New Testament here. Currently, you can group the many manuscripts into different families. Depending on where they've come from, you've got Alexandria. as a group of manuscripts, Alexandria, North Africa, just Egypt. You have Western manuscripts, which have come out of Rome. You have Byzantine manuscripts, which are Asia Minor. Now, the Byzantine, by way of example, was the major manuscript used when King James authorized the version of his Bible in 1611. Okay. And then you have the Caesarean, which is in and around Palestine texts. So you got those four families. What are they? Alexandria, which is North Africa, yeah, with Egypt, yeah. Why? Why is Alexandria so important? It's a big colony of Jews there. Yeah. They reckon it was the largest library in the ancient world, don't they? They it was massive. It was a real seat of learning. And you're right, a lot of Jews came out into Alexandria. Okay, Rome, we understand. Western text, Western church, Byzantine, Asia Minor, and Caesarean. Okay, and there are different types of manuscripts. And you'll hear all these things and... Uh, the first lots are what we call papri, p a p y r i, papri, and these are in the second to fourth century. So they're early manuscripts. They're made up of this material, a primitive form of paper, manufactured from pressed and dried papyrus. Most of these. Uh, fragments of manuscripts So they're small parts And we, we glue them together The form of the letters is a unical. Uh, there's no punctuation or space In between words or sentences Exists Nothing like that exists There, I reckon um, in the 2nd to 4th century there are about 70 of these And pretty good ones around Then you have unicles. So this is the first two centuries Then you have unicles, Which are 4th to 10th century 4th To the 10th century. So that's quite a large period of time, 600 years. There are about 259 of these. And uh, (coughs) they're the earliest, most complete um, (coughs) unicles, likes of Codex Sinaticus. You may have heard of Codex Sinaticus. That was completed about 350 AD and it, it contains a complete copy of the New Testament. And it's now in a British, a British museum. It was discovered in 1850, actually, at Tissendorf. So one, one it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a complete copy. A complete New Testament, 27 books. The whole shooting box. So it's 350 AD. It's a significant one. We have earlier fragments of all the letters and all the epistles back, but they match with this complete set that we have. And um, Tischendorf. Yeah, discovered by, oh, discovered by Tischendorf, not found in Tischendorf, discovered by Tischendorf in the 1850s. It sits in a British museum. I'm not sure of the name of the British museum. Yeah. Then we have Codex Alexandrius So Codex Satanicus is always If you're ever doing any textual criticism You'll see an X by that That will mean it's citing that particular manuscript Okay uh, Alexandrius is easy It'll just be an A <laughs> And that's a 5th uh, century they believe uh, written form of the entire New Testament. And then you have Codex Vaticanus. And this is earlier than even Sci- Sciaticus. It's uh, 325 AD, so around the Nicene Creed time. And that sits in the Vatican Library at the moment. And it's complete except for parts of Hebrew, Revelation, and the pastoral epistles. So, it's a pretty important document from its combination of what sits in it. So, are they missing or were they not included? It's, uh, I, don't know, I don't know. That's a good question. That's not there. They, they don't have those parts. They had, they, they're missing parts of Hebrew, so maybe that's been lost. Be parts of, The entire book of Revelation is not in there, and the pastorals. It's in Greek. Or Greek. Yeah. Or Koinonia Greek. I think you can now, yeah, I think you can actually see it. Yeah. These are significantly important, those particular three are significantly important for textual criticism. Significantly important. Uh, Because they include the earliest and best complete manuscripts of the New Testament. So that's the uniculls. Alexandrus, Cyaticus, and Vaticanus. A v for Vaticanus, you'll see that. Actually, no, Vaticanus, they always no, they confuse you. They say B. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you think it'd be V? It'd be B. Yeah. Um, can I just go and get something? We're almost finished. But I want to show you a really great tool, modern tool that will help you with this. I'll just going to go get out of the library. To recommend a Modern English translation That will help you immensely with textual Criticism and things like that It would be the NET Bible NET Bible First edition It's probably got a second edition With 60,932 Translator notes Okay Um, If you want to have a look at it You're most welcome to the beauty about this particular version is they also give you a CD ROM, which helps you out. Well, it? Sorry? Online well. NET's online. Yep, every Bible program of any value will have an NET. And the, the notes. So, since we looked at that John 5 situation, we'll see what they tell us, eh? John 5. Well, okay, there we go. This shows you how significant it is. I'll show you. That's the verse there, verse 7. That's the translator notes down there. (laughs) Okay. So from an English perspective, it will give you a fantastic start. You will read that. You may not understand some of it, but it's going to help. For instance, I won't. Yeah. Um, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit uh, These three are one And their three are testifying on earth This reading is the infamous Como johenium has been known in the English-speaking world Through the King James translation However, the evidence, both external and internal Was decidedly against its authenticity So it tells you And then it will have a discussion as to why Very helpful If you're this way inclined <laughs> okay. So it's um, a really, I'll I'll leave it here for you to have a look at But you're right, it's online, NET's online If you've got a, and I'm not sure if the translator notes are online That's the only thing, they should be Very helpful Hmm? That's great Really worth looking at if you're interested in this sort of thing Yeah. Yeah. It's okay if you can read the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most of us can't. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. See, why do these scribal errors happen? It's easy, isn't it? You've just you've said to us earlier when you try and copy scripture, you go away, you you get distracted. Errors of sight, errors of hearing, errors of memory, errors of judgment. Um, Sometimes there are intentional errors by scribes, but they're relatively rare. They want to try and clarify a vague text, as in 1 John 5, or they want to throw a theological position over the text. Uh, They want to try and harmonise it with the text With a familiar expression They want to include all the options in order to preserve the text And maybe to strengthen their theology As I said um, We evaluate these things internally and externally Externally You're trying to always go back to the oldest reading And the most difficult reading Is always preferred Okay So if it for a scribe to try and make it smoother, when they've copied it, they might put a few extra words in to smooth it out. So the most difficult reading is more likely to be the more authentic. Okay. So that that's just a standard process in textual criticism. You wanna the oldest is best. So you want to always at a minimum have some of these unicles in here. And then the papri, if you can get papri evidence, which supports because these are only fragments, right? But if these, these support that. And the other real major key in support of these is the apostolic fathers. Don't ever forget those guys. The guys that were writing between AD, 100 and AD 600. Because they were constantly quoting scripture. Constantly quoting scripture. And you can go and read their their commentaries their homilies whatever it might be and you and on these these guys do textual critics will go and look at that to make sure that it lines up with this 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 and this and go for the older reading absolutely yeah Yeah, that's a true statement. We could we could uh, assemble assemble the New Testament from the Apostolic Fathers. Yeah. The other thing that goes into consideration, the oldest is best. The next one is the widest geographical distribution. Which reading has the widest geographical distribution? That's important in this textual criticism thing. So if it was just some little papery. In Crete said this, and you had another papri that had was um, distributed through Jerusalem and maybe up into Asia, you would take that one more than the one that's in Crete. it's more accepted in a wider geographical range. So the principle is, uh, prefer the more difficult and also prefer the shorter. We become very verbose as people when we like to add things that we shouldn't. I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for your time. Next week, we'll, we'll look at uh, inerrancy as well as uh, canonization. I hope that's been helpful. Give you a fire for this sort of stuff. Uh, take it a little bit deeper. But above all, it's uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture. Is God-breathed And is profitable of what? Teaching Correction Instruction and training in righteousness That's why we study God's word To be shaped and transformed Let me pray for us And uh, go home to your families Father we uh, thank you for your word Your written word The word that is inerrant Uh, We thank you for The shoulders of the men we stand on Who have wrestled with these issues Of uh, authenticity Of inspiration uh, Of textual criticism Even Lord And we we thank you that uh, your word Its original documents are inherent; That they're inspired by you That uh, they're God-breathed And Father we pray That as your people, we'll learn to trust more deeply your word. We'll allow it to transform our hearts, our minds, our lives. To serve you in a way that is, is pleasing to you. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.